welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week I've got the best possible inspiration for you to do your spring cleaning. It may reveal whether people are living in your attic or crawl spaces. Yeah, a cursory check of Google will reveal the terrifying amount of times that people have discovered other people, people they don't know, living in their homes amongst them. And our guest this week has written a story that takes that horrifying concept and puts a whole new face on it. AJ Ganusi's debut, Girl in the Walls, has been billed as one of the gothic thrillers of 2021. But this is no straightforward home invasion story. Yeah, there is a scuttling in the architecture and lots of people watching other people whilst they sleep. But it's also a moving meditation on grief, loneliness and what the word home really means. Adam and I cover a lot in the next 50 minutes. We talk about the book, of course, why he chose to tell his story in such an offbeat way, how a conclusive ending was important for him, and how the house itself became as much a structure for his writing as the plot. But we also go to some strange places, from the brutal history of New Orleans to the time we both almost ended up choosing to stay in Hurricane Katrina. And we also discuss how it's a 50-50 chance that someone is living secretly in your home right now. <laughs> so come with me to a suburban house on the banks of the Mississippi River, but also keep one eye on your own surroundings. What was that noise? Did you just see something move from the corner of your eye? Told you. Let's talk scared. <laughs> Hi Adam, welcome to Talking Scared. Thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here. This is our second attempt at recording this interview. We had to delay because of the hellish conditions in Texas. So we're recording this in late February, a week after the peak of the storm. By the time people hear this, no doubt it will be kind of a distant memory with the way the years are going at the moment. Um, and it'll be hot as hell where you are. But as we currently stand, how are things in Texas right now in the immediate aftermath? Somehow already hot as hell. Um, it is. That's right. Late <laughs> February last week, it was frigid temperatures, all, all, all sorts of records being broken. And um, because it's Texas, it is absolutely hot. Once again, we're doing well here. Um, it's It's been tough, clearly, for a lot of Texans, but um, we're getting back to some uh, semblances of normality. So we're very grateful about that. Yeah, that's good to hear. Whereabouts in Texas are you? We are in, um, college, me and my fiance, we live here in College Station. It's it's uh, right outside, our, or it's the, the town that Texas A&M is in. She's getting her PhD, and I'm just following her wherever she goes. Um, but yeah, that's where we've been for the last couple of years, and it's it's been a change. I'm, I'm a uh, Louisiana boy. Um, that's actually where, where my novel Girl on the Walls is set. Um, and it's it's a lot drier here and it's it's somehow even more hot than where I thought, you know, was the the absolute maximum of heat. Um, but we're we're adjusting as as much as you can considering, you know, the the world is ending and weather patterns mean nothing anymore. It looked pretty hellish from this side of the pond. I mean we've <laughs> had our own we had a cold snap here recently where Everything went a bit nuts for a while, but nothing like what you guys had. So I'm glad you're well. Mm. And and let's all just pray for Ted Cruz. I think that is the main thing. 
<laughs> oh yes for his demise maybe <laughs> yeah 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 you said it you said it but wow um yeah the optics of that were not good um anyway no. en- enough politics um you well i say that let's see where this goes but you've joined us to talk about your debut novel girl in the walls as with a lot of books this year and this has become a bit of a trend week on week the publication schedule has gone a bit wacky so we're recording it in feb because originally this was earmarked for publication in March. As it currently stands, it's due to be released in the UK first, on the 1st of April, by Fourth Estate Books. And then in early May, I think May the 11th, in North America, by Echo Books. That's right. We're recording this way in advance. We'll put it out there in early May. Basically, by the time this comes out, some of you will have, will have read the book, some won't. So with that in mind, Adam, what do our listeners need to know about the book to understand this conversation? Sure, I guess. Um, so Girl on the Walls, it's it's kind of a literary, gothic, uh, it's, I, I guess, primarily literary fiction, but it's, it's the story of a... Um, a girl, Elise, who is an orphan. She's returned to the house that she used to live in with her parents before they passed away. And she's kind of secreted herself away into the walls and the attic space. There's another family living there now. Um, and she is uh, particularly good at hiding, but she spends her days navigating around this family, sneaking downstairs in the middle of the night to gather the kind of supplies she needs. She's she's in the kitchen. She's, you know, sneaking cereal she's she's getting you know uh, little bits of food that the family won't notice or are gone she's also hearing a lot from this family she she has to learn their their routines and their patterns so she's she almost knows them in this this way that um is it's like she's another member of the family meanwhile some members of the family are becoming increasingly aware that maybe those sounds that they hear in the hallway at night maybe the food that seems to be uh going missing um maybe this this isn't just their imagination maybe there is someone secretly living in their house with them uh, the family is composed of two parents and two younger boys and the the boys these brothers um eventually meet up and, and start um, kind of discussing the the sounds they hear and um, even though their parents might not believe them uh, that kind of starts them off on this attempt to maybe find out who who is in their house hiding from them yes it's a really intriguing premise this idea of someone living in the walls of your house um, and I, I want to talk about that in depth because yeah having googled the topic there's all kinds of stuff to read um, to set the, the the tone of this, the word that circles the book in blurbs and early reviews and all the marketing stuff is the word gothic, which is coming up again and again in recent episodes. It seems that winter and spring is, is a gothic time of year. But gothic's a more nuanced term than horror, I would say. So kick off with your opinion. What makes this book gothic? Right. And I, I, it's, a, it's a term that I think is absolutely fascinating in context of this book, as well as just in the context of broader literature. When I was writing this book, I had no concept of, you know, any kind of marketing terms for it. I was just writing the story that this was. And it wasn't until, you know, not only just selling the book, but quite a few months after it, that the the word started um, being bandied about a bit. And um, I guess it's a surprise when you see your, your book, you know, being categorized when you didn't really think of it. In, in terms of those categories, but I do think it's a term that actually fits, but maybe not in the the kind of traditional sense. When people think of the Gothic, they think of the supernatural, or or maybe they mean like historical horror. 
um, sometimes. But I think of it much more in terms of that that broader sense where it's part of that that broader nineteenth um, century romantic movement where they're pushing back against these uh, ideas of the enlightenment with reason and and these these kind of ideas that rationality will take care of all of our problems and that's that's going to fix everything. I think of the Gothic in terms of you know emotion and the the things we don't understand. Um, and really powerful emotions like grief or, or fear um, kind of put us off of our axis and, and make us look at the world differently, maybe a little bit closer or more attentively than we did um, before. The idea of hearing, you know, a sound thumping in your walls and, and instead of writing it off going like, oh, just ha- houses make those noises, but letting your imagination run a little bit deeper and and and. S- Maybe that's a person in there and seeing, you know, what kind of artistic or emotional implications come um, from that realization. So I do think of, you know, the Gothic is a pretty broad term. It's 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 when emotion kind of trumps rationality. Um, and in that way, I do think Girl on the Walls is very much uh, it's, a, it's an appropriate title for the book, too, especially because it's it's a book very much about, you know, not only coming to terms with the things we don't know, but but about overcoming grief as well very much so um because elise is is orphaned and that's why she's here um and you spend an awful lot of time in her head and she's almost actively not coming to grips with her grief it's quite a a paired back perspective that she has but but that that monster of grief is always looming i've talked about the gothic in the past on this podcast and given my my rough definition because like you say it's a it's a category that is is it's, it's all consuming now it can mean anything and, and runs the risk of meaning nothing but i think i've caught this before and said that my favorite definition of the gothic ever was by a guy called chris baldick who to paraphrase said it was all to do with entrapment in history and entrapment in space this book seems to fit that perfectly because it is claustrophobic both in terms of well, she's living in the walls of a house, but it's also claustrophobic in terms of her mind. And we're trapped often in, in her thoughts, her childlike thoughts that quite, can't quite reconcile the emotion she's going through. Would you agree with that? Is that something you set out to do to make it claustrophobic? Yeah, absolutely claustrophobic. And, and seeing this this house that she's um, secreted herself into as, as, a, as a larger metaphor of how we wear these shells of grief that we kind of uh, retreat within ourselves uh, as a means to, to cope. And maybe, you know, when we talk about the stages of grief, you know, there's denial and it's not necessarily a progression from one to the other. We tend to bounce around between them a bit. And, and that's something Elise is doing. It's, it's that she's undergoing these, these um, stages of grief, coping with the loss of her, for, of her parents, as well as, you know, the life that she was leading while keeping it all in this shell of denial, this, this unwillingness to cope and move on um, and go on to the rest of the world, whatever that might look like without her parents. Yeah, it's like she's wearing this house as a, as a, it's it's armor that you know protects her, but it also mm-hmm. bogs her down, doesn't let her escape the cycle of grief that she's living in. It's it's both a, it's armor and a cage, isn't it? Right. Yeah, that's right. Whenever I do these interviews, I always try and give some context to listeners by by asking authors about their inspirations and the writers that you know they feel like they are akin to. Who was your inspiration for this book? Who was your tonal or thematic or writerly inspirations? Because I've got a theory, but but who who spoke to you? 
Well, I'm very curious about your theory, but um, some of the books that I went to, um, I, I feel like as as a person as well as a writer, I tend to be drawn towards you know the kind of the eerie and and the creepy, just just because that's kind of what I tend to obsess over just as a human. Um, but in terms of kind of literary guides, the kind of things you come back to and go like, oh, okay, how would this this person uh, deal with this this concept? It was it was kind of surprisingly. It's an, it's an Italian author. Uh, I, you might be familiar with him. It's um, Italo Calvino. Uh, he's done uh, the, the Baron in the Trees. He's uh, done Marco Valdo and and uh, Cosmic Comics. But there are these really wonderful, like fantastic, strange stories in the Baron in the Trees. It's about a young prince who climbs into the trees in his, I guess it's like the 18th century kingdom, um, and decides he'll never touch the ground again. He'll hop between trees uh, for the rest of his life, and he does that. Um, and it's this kind of incredible just leap of faith and commitment that a young person does to lead an extraordinary life. He, he makes an art out of hopping between these trees in this book. And that's something I was thinking of very much with Elise doing what she is in this house. She's, she's incredibly good at hiding. She makes this kind of what I think is, is a, almost a, a beautiful and mysterious and, and deeply sad, but but also kind of cool life, like doing what she does, moving between the these, it's, a, it's an old plantation style house with balloon framing. So she can actually move down between the walls and rearrange and, and contort her life into something that's, that's actually possible, doing something that seems impossible. I had never thought of Calvino. I, I've only ever read If on a Winter's Night, A Traveller. It's great. But yeah, there is that slipperiness to this fiction. My thoughts on on your root inspirations was very much Shirley Jackson, which is someone that gets talked about all the time on this podcast. I'm sure listeners are getting a bit a little bit like, yeah, yeah, we get it. But that yeah, that, <laughs> that elusive slippery flavour to this novel, because it's not an easily pigeonholed story, this in any way, is it? You know, like we've talked about gothic, but this it's almost genreless. It's there's nothing else I've read that's quite like it. Oh, that's that's great to hear. I love that. Um, and I guess a lot of it, you know, when when writing it, I really wasn't thinking in terms of genre. I was I was more, I guess, genre is so fascinating because it's it's these structures we we lean on or or maybe um, that we can structure these stories into. And and you know, with this story, it was so much of just the house that was kind of functioning as my structure for for this narrative and and then kind of my own experiences having grown up in in new orleans and in a house pretty similar to this one honestly um but yeah i think i actually lost the uh the original question here i'm sorry (laughs) no worries it wasn't really a question it was just amusing but that's fine i mean yeah i've been to new orleans but only Mm -hmm. only once but it is a it's a town that is steeped in the macabre isn't it it is, yeah. It's and it's, I guess, very influential. Kind of growing up in that town and just seeing that as normal. Uh, just walking around and seeing these uh, uh, cemeteries where the dead are all buried above ground. Because if they're buried below ground, the constant flooding will will make them come up up above ground again. Um, and just this this kind of glorification of. I guess macabre really is the best word for it, where whether it's just the voodoo culture that's just kind of perceived as normal or or just these really bacchanal celebrations of, of Mardi Gras that that often kind of mix those those life and death drives um, pretty playfully together. Yeah, the the above ground bodies is a hell of a Freudian metaphor, isn't it? You know, um, right. but my, my favorite we're going off on a tangent now, but my favorite creepy sightseeing thing in New Orleans is the Lori House. Right. 
just um, just the creepiest story can you can you remind me of that because as someone who's from there like i i love to be the tourist in that town <laughs> but i don't often like you know it's it's also just home so it, it becomes a little bit mundane but yeah no i would love to hear that story okay so so awkwardly this is this is man from lancashire uk explains to louisiana native about something in his hometown <laughs> but the lori house was it, it's an antebellum mansion um Oh, yeah, I, I know owned on, by a, a noble woman called Delphine LaLaurie, who there's a long story. And if anyone doesn't know this story, Google it, Wikipedia, because it's fascinating. But essentially, she was discovered to have created her own, essentially a torture chamber in the, the bowels of her house in which she was doing unspeakable things to slaves. And it was only found after a couple of slaves tried to kill themselves and then set the house on fire um, to kind of free themselves from the torment. But the I won't go into details because it's perhaps a bit too grim even for this show. And it it, it also I have a, a bit of an issue with reveling in the notion of torture of slaves. It seems a bit exploitative, right? But it's a hell of a story, and it's it's perverse because it's both her and her husband. Yes, yeah, and and they they fled the night of the fire. They fled off in their carriage, and and all the neighbors were they were going to make this this basic this this riot to 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 arrest and and probably take justice into their own hands um, uh, for these these really perverse people. And and all, it was just horrifying because all these people that lived around them are are connecting the dots in their mind and 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 recognizing that oh those noises we were hearing that's what was happening. Like these kind of strange and ghostly noises that were actually rooted in something that was um, beyond cruel and beyond real and physical. That's just happening next door. Um, and you can, you can just in the French quarter, you can just go by the house. Yeah. It's a fascinating story. The, the Laurie house. Again, I'll put it in the show notes, but it's worth looking up. The ultimate creepy colder to that story is that the house is now owned by Nick Cage because of course it is. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah, of course. Oh gosh. Yes. That's a nice segue into the kind of context of this story in, in terms of real world horror. Um, I remember watching a film when I was a little boy and it was an adaptation of James Patterson's Kiss the Girls starring Morgan Freeman. And it's at best a mediocre seven-ish serial killer <laughs> ripoff. But there's a prologue in that film um, that shows a mother and daughter going about their business at home and a man is watching them through a crawl space vent and in voiceover at the start, he says, I lived with them all that summer. I remember that moment, it struck me like a bell as kind of unutterably chilling. And it's stuck with me ever since. I still remember the feeling in my stomach when I heard him say that I lived with them all that summer and they don't know. Now, you plough very similar territory in this novel, Girl mm -hmm. in the Walls, in the idea that your home is not secure and it's not impermeable yet you turn the normal implications of that concept on its head, where the, the person in the walls is not a threat. So double-barreled question, I suppose. First of all, what inspired the story? Yeah. And secondly, what inspired you to tell it in this way? Absolutely, and that's a great question. Um, first off, in terms of what inspired me is that you're right. This it, this thing kind of thing happens, and not just in art. It's not just a trope in art. You can um, uh, once I had started working on this project, I had friends emailing me news articles that would just pop up regularly, and they're like, "Oh, this is great inspiration for you," and, and I I wouldn't know what to tell them because it'd be like, "There's so much inspiration out there, you don't 
realized like, oh, another story of an ex-husband who's moved into his ex-wife's house and is living in the attic, just listening to her and then finally waits for, you know, his, his chance to confront her coming down there. It's just deeply horrifying. Or, or these weird, you know, viral stories of people finding a weird crawl space that, that connects to the outside and they find the remnants of someone who'd been going in there and it's hard to figure out when or how long someone had been there. It's constant. It's regular. And you know, I, this story isn't original in the idea of having someone, you know, hiding and sneaking around in the walls. But um, something that was important to me was to flip the idea on its head, because for me, what's so interesting is like what drives a person to want to live in a wall. Sure, you've got the the angry ex-husband, but that's that's not as interesting to me of a character as someone that I might end up actually being on the side of. And Elise, who's in the walls, is, is certainly someone that I think, you know, while she's doing something incredibly invasive, um, she's someone you you kind of end up rooting for. And and while maybe her getting found is the best thing for her, I know as as an author who's also kind of experiencing the story as a reader in that weird way, I'm rooting for Elise not to get found. I'm like, no, come out on your own terms. Don't be found by these people. Yeah, that's interesting because I didn't know what we were supposed to think about that because reading it as an adult, you just want someone to take care of this little girl. But as you say, reading it as a reader inhabiting her head, obviously you want her to keep on living the life on her own terms. Yeah, yeah, that is a strange kind of dissonance that you have. But going back to the uh, the real world implications of this, I mean, if you listen to this alone at home in your house, probably don't, probably wait till the morning because... Yeah, it's um, <laughs> it, it, it's creepy as all shit. I mean, if you Google... it's uh, wonderful. If you Google someone living in my house, it brings back a frankly terrifying number of articles. Like, hundreds. And, and I found one. Um, and to repeat myself again, I'll put it in the show notes. My, I mean, favourite's a strange word, but, but the most remarkable case, there is a video you can watch on YouTube from Japan where... Over the course of a year, this guy living in, you know, tiny Japanese real estate notices his food going missing. So he set up a camera and you're watching the video of an empty kitchen. And then it's like something from Paranormal Activity. All of a sudden, a kitchen cupboard door creaks open and a woman crawls out like the little girl crawling from the TV in the ring. And she'd been living in his in his cupboard, in his kitchen cupboards for a year. And... It's just the most unnerving thing watching her emerge. And it happens so much. Yeah, it's it's wonderful you brought that video up because um, what I, I originally started with a, a short story for before I tried this novel. And I was kind of just experimenting with the ideas. But um, where that short story started from is uh, my friend and I, we were kind of driving down St. Charles of all, all places. You've got those beautiful, you know, hanging live uh, oaks. And he had seen that video and it was it kind of started him off on this tailspin. He was living alone at the time in mid city and he started watching all sorts of videos real, you know, some of them aren't real. They're just staged and just reading news stories on it because he was hearing noises in his house that he was worried that they were, you know, someone else coming out in the middle of the night and and raiding his pantry. And, And once you start looking for that, you know, you you forget that you put um, the remote in a different place than than you expected. You you start projecting that kind of fear there, and hearing him talk about that, 
it was the weirdest thing because instead of being frightened by him talking about that, I felt this really profound sense of relief that I wasn't the only one that had these kind of weird fears every once in a while where it was like, uh, you know, the, the the thing that compels you to look under your bed or, or pull open the shower curtain, um, even though you're living alone at the time, just because, you know, there's that, that weird sense of what if. Um, and uh, it's it's really wonderful to be able to share those kind of fears with another person. And, and that's really, you know, that was a huge driving component for me writing this story to try to, to, to work with the idea and then mix that weird sense of relief in hearing the story. Um, instead of just making it this, this monstrous figure living in a house, really just kind of exploring that curiosity of who would be there? Um, who does that to themselves? Why do they need to do that to themselves? And, and hopefully by understanding that person, make the idea a little less scary. Um, and, just really kind of exploring that. I, I don't know if I'm I'm the only one. I don't think I'm the only one that sometimes when you get so scared, instead of fear, your body kind of replaces it with a, with a form of anger. You know, when you throw the closet door open because you heard something in there and you're less likely to run than to, you know, throw a punch at whatever you might find in there. Um, and I was really interested in this book to kind of turn that impulse into what was scary about Girl on the Walls instead of the, the Girl on the Walls. Well, yeah, and and that we'll get to because that is the scary part that you're alluding to. It's funny you say about fears and about, you know, the relief because I think the world can be split into two kinds of people. There are the kinds of people who, are, who when they hear a noise in the night, think someone has broken in or, you know, someone is living in the walls mm -hmm. of my house. And there's the kind of people who think <laughs> it's a ghost. You know what I mean? Now, I, I don't believe in the supernatural, but I'm very much in the camp that in the middle of the night would think it was a ghost. It would never occur to me there was someone living in the, in the walls of my house. But from what I've seen on Google, chances are there is someone in the walls of your house, I think. So just, just assume there is. <laughs> that idea, yes. either way, of your house being penetrable, the idea that outside forces can invade your securest space, that is one of the most fundamental mm -hmm. fears or tropes in horror. And I mean, it's literally the backbone of the home invasion subgenre in something like right. Paul Tremblay's Cabinet of the World, for example. But it's also the undercurrent of a good ghost story that something has invaded your safe space. Mm -hmm. This is perhaps a bit of a leading question, but I think you can read Girl in the Walls as a story about a certain kind of haunting. And the question is just, who is being haunted and by what? Does that ring a bell with you? Does that resonate with you that it's it's a kind of alternative ghost story? It is. Uh, I think, you know, some people hear the title Girl on the Walls and they immediately think it's going to be, you know, a ghost, a literal ghost story. Um, and what it is, is instead it's a metaphorical ghost story. It's that this house is being haunted by the past because every ghost story is really just a reflection of the past on the present. It's this kind of imprint that the, the past is still continuing and that we don't have control over it or that it is kind of invading um, what we would like the present to be. Um, and I, I think you're absolutely right that it, it is kind of twist on the, the ghost story idea because Elise is clearly haunted by the ghosts of her of her parents. She's not able to get over them. Um, and these this family here is is haunted by the the physical, real, living ghost of the family that lived here before them. There's absolutely this sense of the the permeability of a house that Elise is not the only one who's quote unquote invading this house. 
we like to, to cognitively think that the, the walls of our house, that's a complete divide, that inside the house and outside the house are totally different spaces, but they're not. It's, it's not separate from the environment, from the culture you're in. And the whole idea of that, you know, these thin panes of glass, um, these little locks that we sometimes leave unlocked during the day, that's not a, a, you know, a complete separation. All it takes sometimes for someone to get into your house, which they definitely are, as we've learned from this podcast, is you know leaving your door unlocked for, for 10 minutes and walking into the bathroom or something. And Yeah, I can never let my wife listen to this episode because it's her greatest fear. She She's convinced <laughs> that everyone at any time is trying to get into our house. So yeah, not one for her. You mentioned the past there, and, and that I find interesting because... It may be that I've misread something. I mean, I, I often do, but it, it seems to me there is a, there is a a strange timelessness to the setting of this novel. So there are mm-hmm. cell phones and there's internet, which you know tells us we're in the twenty first century at least, but not exactly when. Uh, and to compare it to something, it reminds me very much of something like the film It Follows, which has got this weird shifting sense of when exactly it's occurring. Right. And then we have a huge storm, which breaches the Mississippi levee. And I couldn't shake the idea that that was Katrina. and Or at least the ghost of Katrina, which is another kind of haunting, isn't it? But is it Katrina or is it just a storm? Am I reading too much into this? Your, your reading is spot on. I definitely wanted it to not be... Um definitively or or maybe just obviously overtly i think is probably the best word for it 2005 with katrina um i didn't want it to be limited to being another katrina story as well although you know that was someone who grew up in new orleans that was something that was really influential on me and in in the way that katrina is not the only hurricane we've dealt with that's been severe and that it's not going to be the last hurricane that comes. I wanted this this um, story and the, the use of, of the hurricane to kind of be this, this relentless cycle of, you know, the present kind of trying to, to wipe away the past. Um, so yes, it's, it's, when I was writing this, it's it's intentionally 2005, although very subtly in some ways. I don't overtly say that. And a lot of the the kind of ridiculous things that happen with that storm, they're you know very true things that my friends and and I and family have have seen ourselves and have experienced to, to a certain degree. Were you in New Orleans for Katrina? My family and I were very lucky. We um, evacuated. Um, what's what's kind of the misnomer and what was so frustrating about the the narrative running after the time was this this idea that New Orleanians knew for like a week beforehand that Katrina was coming. But really, I think it was about like 11 hours or less before the storm made landfall. Um, my parents and I and my, my brother and sister were in the backyard just debating whether we would evacuate for this one. Um, we'd never evacuated for any storms before at that point. Um, and um, just kind of, it was supposed to look really bad. It was supposed to, you know, it, it hit the Florida panhandle. It was supposed to disappear. And then it kind of blew up in those those hyper hot Gulf waters. Um, and, you know, last minute we ended up leaving and it was a great, great decision. Glad we did that. Our house uh, remained standing. We had some damage. I think we lost our garage. and But at the same time, Part of our in the the interior ceiling. It's a two floor building, um, but part of the interior ceiling of the first floor ended up falling down, and it's, it was in the spot that we thought was safest. Um, it's where in previous storms we'd all kind of gathered with our sleeping bags. Um, don't really want to think about you know 
what that would have meant for us. It might have been okay. I just don't want to think about it. But one crazy thing from that was um, that since repairs all over the city, you know, it took years in, in parts of that city and many buildings are still not yet come back. But I think it was at least eight months. We had the, the kind of cross beams from that, that hole in the ceiling showing. And, you know, if I'm sitting here watching the ring late at night, because I was an idiot watching the ring late at night when I was like 15. And I would be absolutely terrified that I would look up and see this big dark space in my ceiling where, the, the, where it come down between those cross beams, like a little pale face looking back at me. Um, yeah, and I don't know if I've ever gotten over that. <laughs> well, considering your book, no, you probably haven't. I think that's probably very much in the bedrock of all this. <laughs> I mean, if you'll indulge me, I talk about roads, you know, not taken and, and how lucky you were to get out of New Orleans. I was very, very close to being stuck in Katrina myself. Me and my friends, after our third year of university, we decided to drive from San Francisco to Florida. And it was amazing in 2005. And we got to New Orleans and there was rumor that this storm was coming. And my my, my best friend mm-hmm. who listens to this show, a guy called Daniel Owens, L-O-D, he said to us, we're going to stay and watch this hurricane. Hmm. And I'm like, no, we're absolutely not. We're, we're not going to stay and watch the hurricane. And his words, and I swear this is true, he said to me, no one ever dies in hurricanes anymore. <laughs> so so we came very close to be four pasty white guys sitting in the Superdome entirely because we chose to be there. So, yeah, yeah, that's my Katrina story. Anyway, that's the book. So we talked about the house being permeable and weather and the storm is another example of that, about the, the, the you know, the, the lack of solidity between indoor and outdoor space. It, it finds its way in. Um, the story is all about this house being penetrated and uh, perhaps the scariest penetration mm-hmm. is done by a character called Mr. Troust. So for two thirds, this, this novel rumbles along in quite a gentle register. Um, it's creepy by implication. Mm-hmm. But then we meet Mr. Troust, who is, to my mind, the real kind of locus of terror. Now, he's this terrifying creature who invades the family's home ostensibly to, fa- to help them find Elise. But then things turn dark. Um, was he always in this in this story, or did it did it come around as a, an evolution? He was from the the very beginning, and he is somebody that you know he's the jump scare I think in this in this book. But from the very beginning, I, I was mapping out this story on a on a um, a whiteboard and just trying to draw this house and draw these characters and how would a girl do this? But there was always this sense of I wanted the opposite of Elise, the the invader who is terrifying who is not benevolent. Um, or I don't know if Elise is benevolent. She's trying to take care of herself, but she's certainly not. Um, you know, wicked or cruel, but this this man is. But what's so fascinating to me about Mr. Troust is that his motivations are really just to try to to find this person. He's he's someone that's um, grown up um, wondering whether you know those noises in in his walls were a person. They might have they might very well have been. He was never able to have that that kind of conclusion or that sense of knowledge of actually seeing the person or, or seeing what they they left behind, and it's kind of led to a person who's who's been um, kind of taken over by his obsession, who needs to find the evidence of someone that's that's in those walls, just so he knows he he wasn't making it up. He wants to find Elise, and he's willing to do anything. Um, maybe to anybody and definitely anything to that house to be able to, to maybe get his hands on her. 
Um, he's absolutely horrifying and yeah, it's, it's, uh, he's kind of fun in his, in his terror in a way. <laughs> You've alluded to it there, but are we led to believe that he's doing what he's doing because of his own childhood trauma that he had people in his walls as a child. Is he mentally ill or are we to believe that he was haunted in this way? I don't know if that's, that's really clear because we get, you know, everything's filtered through him telling you what his past was in this novel. Um, he seems to believe very strongly that there were people or a person in his house and um, they're, there may have been, um, he seems pretty committed. There might've been, you know, physical evidence of that kind of thing, but you don't really know because he doesn't really fully know. And that's kind of what drives him. Yeah. There's these great interstitial sort of sections where it's, it's blog posts written by Mr. Troust. Um, and they, they're really creepy because they are, you know, they're the products of, products of a disordered mind, but they're also speaking to you as the reader in which he's telling you what to do if you think you have people in your walls and he's saying that you know he's actually saying people won't believe you he's saying you know that people will say you're mad people will tell you you're wrong but you're not wrong they are there and when you're reading it it's almost like he's speaking to you and, and confirming your fears when in fact he's actually speaking to a character in the in the book but it breaks the fourth wall and makes you start looking at your eaves a bit uncomfortably yeah, absolutely. Even you just kind of describing what the book does. I'm actually getting you know a couple goosebumps here myself. <laughs> but yeah, no, he's he's definitely um, a character that that frightened me much more than the the girl on the walls. I I wrote this book um, kind of wanting to exercise some of my own fears about you know that little pale face and the the ceiling and watching the ring at the same time. Jesus, such a bad idea. But um, but by turning this 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 idea of the creepy little potentially somewhat dead girl into um, something that's actually pitiable and, and often really likable. Um, and then kind of taking my fear and my the anger that I might feel at being afraid and turning that into the villain in this book. Um, honestly, by writing the book, I was, I was able to kind of walk away um, a lot less afraid of those weird little bumps you know, this is an anecdote that's, it sounds unbelievable because I'm not even sure I, I quite believe it. It's, it's insane. Um, it was, it was during my, um, MFA program and I was living with a number of other writers in this big old house they called the Abbey, um, that was a, a little bit dilapidated, but that's, that's fine. We were happy to be there. Um, but I was working in this office space and I was hearing, you know, footsteps in this office space when I was home alone. And I was just, I was just would constantly tell myself it's because you're writing this book. Um, and, you know, sometimes when I'm, I'm walking out in the last one of the house, I'm closing the, the front door behind me and I'm looking back and that, that, that little sliver as the door's meeting its jam, I think I see something move across just like a flash of a shirt or something. And then I'm just frozen and I'm feeling very much like the, the kind of tyrannical, frightening Mr. Troust. And I'm peering in through all the windows. I'm circling around. I'm trying to find like, who is it? I know you're in there. And I, I almost, I almost called 911. I was like so carried away that someone was in that house. I didn't see anything, but it's not until we were moving out of the house at the very end. This office I was working in had a closet and I had just, a, it was a, just a junk closet with a bunch of stuff in it. Um, and like Halloween decorations, of course, um, that I just kind of thrown in there. And there was this, <laughs> I don't know how I didn't notice this until then, but there was this kind of plywood door. It's, it was maybe two feet by two feet. And it had like this this little um, metal latch that was vertical and that would keep the, the plywood door open. And inside, 
was just another attic space. Now, the thing is, what was creepy about this is we had no idea this was there the whole time. And the attic space was empty. It was very low. Um, it was maybe about like four feet high and, and quite deep with all these rafters blocking uh, a number of things that you couldn't see. But as we were moving out, that latch was open. It was just open. And I thought, because I'd been working on the story, my roommate had opened it just to frighten me about this. And he thought I was joking because I was writing this book that I was trying to scare him with this. Don't know how it came open. Looked inside. I could have gone in and seen what was behind those rafters. Absolutely did not. Was not interested. Was just very interested in just moving out the house and leaving. And I've done that. And it's worked out great for me. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that, that is fascinating. God. I, I have a thing where every night I go to... We, me and my wife moved into the house we live in currently about 18 months ago. And every single night I get in bed and don't have to go to sleep and... About 20 minutes after I turn the lights off, every night I hear a door downstairs close. What? What? Now I've come downstairs. No one's here. The doors are all open. Each door in my ground floor, for some reason, I don't know why, has a key um, to lock the door. So you can lock every internal door in my house, which is creepy in itself. You know, I don't know why that is like that. Um, yes. And every night I hear a door close. Now, I'm, I'm sure it's next door or something. It's always the same time after we go to bed, regardless of what time we go to bed. Uh, and it's really audible. And I never thought anything of it. And then I read your book. And, and now <laughs> I'm just looking for where the bastard is, the person who's clearly eating my cornflakes. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's wonderful, and yeah, I'm I'm you you're sure that it's not a person, but I'm I'm not so sure myself, and I can do that. And once again, my there. wife can't listen to this, so that's fine. <laughs> Drawing towards the end of, of of the conversation about the book, the the epilogue closes the story quite neatly, when actually there was a lot of scope for ambiguity. Now, obviously, without asking you to spoil the ending, because no one wants that, why did you choose to conclude? Elise's story in such a way was closure important to you absolutely um and it's it's a story primarily you know it's got a lot of creepy elements in it but it's it's a story primarily about overcoming grief and um uh, overcoming grief of not just losing your parents but losing your home and it's it's an important story for me because as a New Orleanian you know there's there's all these weird resonances with the fear that we had um that um, New Orleans was going to be wiped out next hurricane season. There'll be another Katrina and that will finish us off. It wasn't for, I think, five or six years, or you could probably say even now that I, the, the people I know, my friends there, the, the community I know of people were just finally letting their guards down a little bit that, you know, okay, maybe this home we have is something that we can hold on to and, and, and go on with your life and, and find happiness uh, is was very important for me thematically in this novel. And just in a very more, much more particular sense with Elise, she's been through a lot. She's been living in the walls. <laughs> I want something for her that's, that's certain um, and, and good. I don't know if that's much of a spoiler, but um, I, I felt she deserved it after what she'd been through as an 11 year old girl. That's not a spoiler. I mean, it could go a lot, a lot of ways. Okay. I was really relieved that there was closure because the nature of the way you write this book and the nature of the language and the structure and all those things, I was expecting it to be really elliptical and really ambiguous and, you know, mm -hmm. um, unconfirmed. 
exactly like you say, after watching her go through what she's been through, you want to know she'll be okay. So I, I was glad you went for, if I can be so crude, a kind of closed genre ending as opposed to a ambiguous literary ending. Right. You know what I mean? I, I, it was It was a relief to me. Yeah. And what I think is kind of interesting, at least in my mind, is um, that, you know, the, the literary ending is are typically considered the, the artistic ending. But in some ways, it's it's kind of the easy ending sometimes where you think about, you know, how those 80 power 80s power ballads would always just kind of yeah, trail they, they dribble off to tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't. It's And my thought is, well, you didn't know how to end it. So <laughs> that's how you got away with it. Um but yeah, it's, and, and that's not always the case. Obviously, there can be beautiful art done in, in the elliptical ending as well as, you know, um, there can be art everywhere. But it, it was something that was very important for me from the beginning, from the, the, the you know, absolutely the earliest, you know, just trying to conceive this idea. Um, it was important for me to have um, a sense of positive closure. This is a strange comparison now, uh, and one that almost surely is inaccurate. But you know what I thought of over and over but at the end in that last final moment of the epilogue? I thought about Blade Runner. <laughs> because because you have a sort of there's a totem in this novel. There's a, a little icon. I won't go into what it is. Right. Um and it's used to confirm yeah. things for certain characters. Mm-hmm. Um in the way that you know the little paper origami unicorn confirms things in Blade Runner. And I thought it was, yeah, it's nice that there is that that confirmation. Everyone can move on with their lives in this book, knowing what the story is and what has happened. Yeah, I and I I love that it's this what to anybody else would be uh, an an object that um, holds no meaning that it seems you know just completely random um, uh, and meaningless. But just by seeing this object here again, it, it communicates so much and it, it gives that that assurance that um, you know. For someone like Mr. Troust, he was never able to have that, and and he by him never getting that sense of closure, it's it's what kind of made him so miserable yeah. for so long. Um, so I I I love that they had they can kind of share that gift between them both. I think we've danced around that quite well. I think people will still not know what to expect. That's <laughs> yeah, I know, right? um, so well, what, what before I was going to ask you what's next for you. Before I say that, one thing I do want to say just to just to drive some listeners to something else that you've written. Um, I've been reading some of your short fiction in various publications. Oh, wow. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, And I read a story in the LA Review that's called Three Stories on Monsters on Grieving in the Gulf South. Um, And it's a kind of triptych about, well, about monsters and grieving in the Gulf South. And you only have to look at the nature of the magazines that you publish in to see that they are quite literary in aspiration and in scope. And yet you keep bringing this macabre edge to your stories. Do you think of yourself as a writer of horror or gothic or the macabre? And is that what you're going to play with moving forwards? I think it's it's something that I'm drawn to just just because that's something I'm interested in. I've I've trained in the very traditional literary style and under, you know, MFAs and and that's kind of what I know best. But at the same time, I really do think that um, literary fiction can benefit from qualities of horror and the macabre and the gothic and the romantic, just in a broad sense. Um, I think I, I'm excited to be in the time we are where, with the direction I think literature is moving, where it's kind of pushing away that, that cold, maybe 
unemotive irony that that's kind of been permeating a lot of literature for a very long time. Um, and we're going to something that's much more sincere and something that's that's much more emotional. And and what's more emotional than you know the 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 genres that really appeal to our sense of you know the big big emotions like fear, like by being carried away um, by something that's beautiful and as well as you know that's that's got a little teeth on it. Um, you know, I say all that. And the next project I'm, I'm doing is is probably less gothic and maybe a little bit more horror, honestly. Um, but it's still quite very literary. It's not using the structured template of like the the standard horror genre, and it's um, I, it's going to be quite unpredictable what's going to happen next because it's it's kind of using its own model. Um, we'll see, you know, how it how it comes up when it's finally finished. Can you give us a slight tease on what that's dealing with, what it's about? Sure. Okay. So it's, um, yeah, this is super, super new. And it's about three kids who are dealing uh, with a lot going on in, in a rural town in Texas. And it's, um, they, they decide to deal with their issues by um, putting on masks and going out and scaring people. Um, and then one of their attempts to scare people goes a little bit too far. Okay. Coming of age horror is my favorite subgenre. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, I look forward to that very much. All that's left to do now is ask you my four rapid-fire closing questions. Throw me your answers. It's kind of a literary uh, inkblot test, if you know what I mean. Sure. So to start off with, what was your gateway to horror or the macabre? Right. So um, I would say when I was about 11 through like 14, I binge read uh, almost all of Stephen King <laughs> as much as you can. He's just so prolific. Um, and I got to the point where I consumed so much Stephen King that I was kind of afraid of everything, like going outside, staying inside, um, uh, just just existing. Um, and I felt like I was a cup just brimming over of, of anxiety. And um, I do think that, you know, I've always been someone who's interested in, in fantasy genres or, or gothic. I love this sense of um, the world opening up on you in a place that you didn't necessarily expect, like um, uh, Alice in Wonderland's, you know, falling down through the, that hole at the base of the tree and just this kind of unraveling of, of the world around you that horror does, that, that fantasy does. Um, and I've, I've, I'm just very excited about bringing that kind of concept towards, you know, a literary fiction or maybe bringing, you know, literary fiction to that concept. I'm not sure there's ever been a more influential author than Stephen King. If you look at the sheer number of people who are right. impacted and, well, in some way inspired by his work, I think he may be the most influential writer of all time. But that's just my fanboy theory. I once spent an entire year reading nothing but Stephen King in chronological order. Um, and yeah, a few years wow. ago, there were like 68 books to read or something. And, and much like yourself, by the end, there was little I wasn't frightened of. <laughs> if you could recommend one book to our listeners, what would it be and why? I, um, I'll recommend to you all what really inspired me to um, be able to write, you know, to feel like I could write uh, a story in the style that I've been learning about that was a little spooky. And it's um, Brian Evanson's Wind Eye. It's a short story collection. And, and in particular, what I'm really in love with is that the title story of it, Wind Eye. Uh, I'm not going to give it away because even just giving you any details of it kind of gives away this, this really beautiful and deeply unsettling story that, like Girl on the Walls, is um, frightening, but also dealing with um, uh, concepts of grief in a really you know, subtle and, 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 you know, unsettling way. You're the second person to 
recommend a Brian Evanson story. Jeremy Robert Johnson, um, author of The Loop, also recommended one of his collections. And he also used the word unsettling. He said it melted really? his brain. Um, I haven't read any Brian Emerson, but I am getting him on the show in, I think it's August. Oh, wow. Um, to talk about his new, the glassy burning floors of hell, his new collection. So, yeah, I'm going to have to catch up on all of his work and stuff. So thanks for the recommendation. Third question. If you had a piece of advice for a fledgling wannabe author, much like myself, what would it be? I would just say um, for, for anybody that's especially dealing with the, the novel, because that's such an intimidating, huge project you have to take undertake, just do it. <laughs> um, so much of the difference between the people that complete the novel and, or at least get to a place that they're happy with where it's been uh, or it's where it's gotten to is just stamina and just the willingness to, to keep at it. Um, I, I'm not anyone special for having completed a novel. And, and fortunately, I have a lot of wonderful writer friends that are like me that who aren't incredibly wonderfully special. They are special in their own ways. But in terms of just completing these books, it's just just doing it. Um, yeah. And then just being OK with getting a little bit done at a time. I think what the biggest the biggest issue writers have to deal with um, when completing these long projects is they just kind of expect that it'll be better at a certain point or they'll be they'll feel like they're a better writer at any point when really all you're doing is just coming back every day and just making a very small part of the book a little bit better or just continuing that first draft thank you inspirational stuff that and my final question my favorite question and you've alluded to a lot of stuff hmm. but what truly scares you I, I'm glad that you've you brought up that a lot of things scare me. Um, yes, so I think what what truly scares me, um, it's it's a tricky question because there's different kinds of fear. At least in my mind, there's the fear that's that's fun and and that's you know unsettling, but something you're fascinated in. Like for me, the idea of people living in the walls, it's like oh that's frightening, but also I want to learn much more about it. Um, when thinking about the kind of fear that I don't want to touch at all, and that's just not for me, I'm just not interested in it. It's body horror. I'm not into body horror at all. And I think the idea of transformation can be beautiful, right? We've got like Ovid's metamorphosis on it. It can be something absolutely wonderful. And it's something we're all undergoing every day and over the course of our lives um, for with, with just these small transformations. But the idea of body horror, I think that's the one thing I don't want to necessarily touch because it, it's deeply depressing to me. It's this, it's kind of, it feels very hopeless. And that's, I, I do think that, and there is hope in a lot of horror and, and that's what I'm much more interested in. Well, you're speaking my, my language there. I mean, I have this thing about horror only works if there is warmth involved in it, a right. cold, bleak knife of a story. Yeah, it might, it might appall you, but it won't move you. Um I'm not as averse to body horror as you are, but I do understand, yeah, it is It is a bleak, mm -hmm. bleak um, genre. And I always think, if anyone ever says body horror to me, I always think of David Cronenberg's The Fly. And I always think, is there a sadder movie ever committed to celluloid than that, than that film? So I, I yeah. get where you're coming from. So yeah, thank you for your answers. Um, just to tell the listeners, if they want to find you on social media or, or online, where can they go? On Twitter, uh, my handle is AJGanusi. Um, also, it's the same on Instagram. And if you want to just say hi on either of those, that's great. You can also say hi through my website, which is AJGanusi.com. Right. Well, I think we've covered a lot of stuff here today. We've kind of gone quite anecdotal. We've both given our live stories, which is excellent. <laughs> um, really, really love the book. I think it's very different to what a lot of people will expect from the title and from the cover. Um, there's nothing much like it that's out there. So I can't recommend 
picking it up enough. By the time people listen to this, it should be available in all the territories that it's going to be available in. So yeah, go and grab a hold of it. But for now, just have to say, Adam Ganusi, thanks for talking scared. Thanks, Neil. So a few things to discuss this week. First of all, the book in question. I read Girl on the Walls a good few months ago now, as as you can tell by the tortured way I tried to explain when that interview was done as opposed to when it aired. And before we go any further, actually, can we all just take a moment to remember that Ted Cruz fucked off to Mexico in the middle of a massive disaster? Let's not let that one slide. Sorry, back to the book. Yeah, I read Girl on the Walls months ago, and I liked it a lot. I enjoyed it. I thought it was interesting, but I didn't expect it to make any real long-term impact on me. But as the weeks have gone by, I find myself thinking about Adam's strange little novel more and more. It really is an unusual piece of fiction. As I say, it's almost genreless. It starts very gently, maybe too gently for some rabid horror hounds. And, and let's be honest, it's not a horror novel in any real sense. But once again, this show is called Talking Scared, not Talking Horror. And scared means many things. And this book is supremely disquieting. You find yourself worrying about this little girl and who's caring for her. And and then Troust arrives and suddenly the book is frightening. This gentle novel that has meandered like the slow Mississippi Delta quickly froths into an angry torrent. And as I'm saying this, I realise that the parallel between the river and the plot is exactly what Adam was intending. See, I'm not fast, but I do get there in the end. Girl on the Walls is unclassifiable, but beautiful and poignant and something quite different, which is always a good thing in my book. Whether it's your kind of different or not, change is good. Give it a go. A lot of you will like it. Some of you will love it. What else do we cover? Right, first of all, the video of the woman emerging from the guy's kitchen covered. It's in the show notes, and honestly, do watch it. It's creepy as hell. If you saw it without context, you'd think it was a clip from a found footage movie. It's properly mad. I can't see how she was living in there, to be honest. She's a normal-sized woman living underneath a sink. But the more you watch it, and the more you look at how she fits in there, you start looking around your own home, looking at the eaves, looking at the airing cupboard, looking under your bed, and you think, who could fit in there? Who could be in there when I'm at work, when I'm not watching? Granted, lockdown probably means you would have found them by now. Yeah, if someone was living in your home in the last year then they are the hide-and-seek champions of the universe. But, you know, the question stands. My wife and I, we're still here in the, the closing door 20 minutes after we turn the light out every night. I've decided to name the person who's doing it. I've called him Trevor, and, and so far he, he's been fine. We, we've, we've remained completely unmurdered in our beds, so, so that's good. Final thing is to give a brief update on my own writing. I mention it every week. I, I seem to reference my as-yet-unfinished novel to every author I speak to. But I've, I've yet to update you guys. As some of you know, I, I quit my job to try and actually write a novel. And this show was a happy offshoot of that. And it's going well. CJ Tudor gave me the friendly and expert advice to resist the lure of the shiny new idea. 
but the shiny new idea proved irresistible. I ended up starting a new story because the one I was writing was frankly unpublishable. It was too ambitious for a noob. I'd never get it even finished, let alone published. And certainly not until I'd, I'd won the book or become the new Stephen King. So anyway, yeah, I've embarked on a new streamlined idea. It's got a hell of a hook, I think, and I'm excited every day to sit down and write it. And all I can hope is that one day I'm talking to someone else on a show like this about my own book. But yeah, both the writing and the show are going well. Adam's advice, be okay with doing just a little each day, that's proved invaluable. Because you get up thinking you have to write thousands of words and it, it's thankless. You, you never reach that elusive goal. Now, if I get a thousand words, but they're good, I'm happy. 500 words, if they're good, I'm happy. And the same with the show. As long as it's good and interesting and you like it, then that, that's all I want. And if you're writing something yourself, don't put too much pressure on yourself. I, that's what I found. I mean, who am I to give advice? But I found that less pressure equals better work. And speaking of work, if you do like Talking Scared, then remember that I've now set up Talking Scared Patreon. The link is in the show notes and on Twitter. It starts as cheap as £2.50 a month. That's around $3. You'll get extra episodes, deep dives into specific topics. Some of them will be mysteries like the Lori Mansion. Some of them will be, you know, my top tens or my thoughts on certain novels or retrospectives on people's careers or whatever takes my fancy and whatever you guys vote on. I'll also be including the the stuff you don't hear from my conversations with authors, the, the rich stuff I've yet to commit to audio. Yeah, I'll be doing compilations every month of that stuff as well. There's a book club that you can get involved in, um, a Discord community, AMAs where you can ask me anything, full honest reviews of each book, and importantly, the chance to submit your own questions for me to put to the authors. All that and more. And I appreciate every single bit of help and... As promised, everyone who donates gets a shout-out. So, I'm delighted to say that I've got seven Patreons so far, seven people who think my work is worth paying for, I'd like to list them now. We've got Chris Butterfield. We've got Benjamin Gardner, who has been a friend of the show since day one. Daniel Owens. He's the mate I mentioned who nearly had me killed by opting into Katrina, so he owes me money. Rachel Smith, who is an absolute godsend, she's donated twice on, on different platforms. You're too generous, Rachel. Thank you so much. Thomas Baines, Georgia Nuttall, and Robert McRobert, who, I've got to be honest, is my dad, but a genuine fan of the show. And that's his real name, and he's proud of it. Every single subscription helps me keep this show going a little longer. Other than that, you can find me on Twitter, at TalkScaredPod, where I'm endlessly musing on various things to do with horror. I'm currently running a World Cup Championship of Horror Movie Villains, soon to be followed by Literary Monsters. You can follow my lame attempts at Instagram, at talking underscore scared underscore pod. It's just photos of books and my dog, but he is a hell of a cute dog. Um, so yeah, check that out. Or email me direct at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. Lastly, reviews, reviews, reviews. I've got about 15, which is brilliant, and they're all five star. I can always use more. So between the Patreon and iTunes reviews, that's your chance to help me out for the work I do. And thanks so much. Right, another week over. Next week, it's the reigning monarch herself, Tanara Reeve Do. 
That interview is in the bag already and it's a doozy and it contains a great anecdote about Jordan Peele. But until then, check around you for false walls, monitor your cornflakes and avoid hurricanes. Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>